Good morning. So we've started 2020 with a sermon series called Limitless, where we're looking at who God is, looking at his attributes and his nature. And I think it's a great way to start the year off. Now, I don't know about you, but I often fall into a trap where I turn Christianity into a list. A list of do's and a list of don'ts. And I can get so fixated on the list that I end up forgetting and taking my eyes off God. But I've got a theory. And my theory is this. If we draw near to God... We open our eyes and we see him and we discover who he is. The do's and the don'ts tend to organically take care of themselves. So, for example, if I discover something about God, something new, something fresh, and I marvel at that, I delight in it, it excites me, I'm going to go away and all of a sudden I've got this energy and enthusiasm to serve. I don't need a list. I want to get involved. I want to be part of what God's doing. All of a sudden, I see the things of the world, things that are sinful, and now they don't tend to glitter the same way they did. Because I'm so satisfied in God, so delighted in God, that it no longer glitters the way it used to. And so this morning... I'm going to try my best not to give you any do's or don'ts. And hopefully, this morning, we're going to discover something fresh about who God is. And I'm hopeful that as we delight in God, delight in his nature, that's going to lead us to want to get involved, to want to serve with enthusiasm. And we won't need a list of do's and don'ts. That's what I'm hoping for. Now, the topic I've been given in this series is hope. And I've been struggling to think, where in the Bible should I speak from? Because hope is everywhere in the Bible. Hundreds of references. And I've been changing my mind and flipping all over the place. One minute I'm talking on Abraham. Maybe Joseph. Maybe a psalm that celebrates hope. Actually, Peter. He's referred to as the apostle of hope. He's got some good stuff about hope. And I was struggling to work out what to speak on. And early this week, I came across a story on Facebook from a victim of the fires down south. And it was a tragic, heartbreaking story of a young woman who was about to be married on her family farm. This beautiful old home that had been in the family 140 years. And she was going to be married in that home, and then her and her husband were going to start their new life living in this historic family home. And the day before the wedding, at very short notice, they had to evacuate and flee the property. The wedding got cancelled, and then on her, what was meant to be her wedding day, she returned to the family farm to see everything was gone. The 140-year-old house, gone. Her wedding dress was in there, it was gone. Every animal on the place, the entire herd of cows, her horses, 
all burnt to death. And the story was heartbreaking. And that story reminded me of Job in the Old Testament. Because Job, in one afternoon, lost everything. And Job is a story about someone searching for hope in a cruel, confusing, broken world. And after that reading, after reading that story on Facebook, it was decided, that's it, I'm speaking on Job. So Job's a big book, 42 chapters. And um, I, we're going to, this morning, scratch the surface. Okay, we're going to do a little, we're going to move quickly through the book. Um, there's too much there to get into every single detail. Now, before we get into Job, let's think about what this word hope actually means. So there's a few different Hebrew and Greek words that we translate into hope. Now, I think the word hope in the Bible is different to the way we use the word hope. So one of the Hebrew words that's common is yachal. And it means to wait expectantly. Now, what's important about this word is that it conveys a sense of certainty, confidence in what we're hoping for. And that certainty and that confidence leads to a sense of being calm and being patient because we're so certain, so confident. Now, that's different to how we use the word hope. We tend to use the word hope more like, fingers crossed, wishful thinking. It's optimism. We hear all the time people who buy lotto tickets and they'll say, I hope that I win. Now, if they have any knowledge on the mathematical probability of their ticket, there's no way that their hope can be certain. Can't be confident because the odds of winning are so low. And so we use hope differently than the Bible uses it. We use it for the Broncos. We use it for all sorts of things. It's not a confident, certain hope. In the Bible, this is different. This is a hope of certainty, where you wait expecting with confidence. You're calm, you're patient, because you, you believe so deeply that this is going to happen. So, let's think about the book of Job. So, like I said, we're going to have to uh, move quickly through this book. We're going to skim through. We can't look at every verse. Uh, we're just going to pick out a few random verses to get a sense of what's going on. So, in chapter 1 of Job, we're introduced to this man. And what we're told about him is that he's a very good man. In fact, God describes him as being upright, blameless, a man of integrity. We also know that he's a man of great wealth, of great standing in his community. He's got 10 kids, and it seems like he has a perfect life. Not much more he could want for or ask for. And then in chapter 1 also, in one afternoon... Job loses everything. A combination of natural disasters and hordes of bandits. He loses all of his property, all of his belongings. His ten children are killed. 
He loses everyone except for his wife. All his employees, gone. And initially, Job's reaction is pretty remarkable. He hears the news of this and he grieves and he says those very famous words that we've all heard before. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And somehow, Job worships. It's extraordinary. But then, Job is also afflicted with this terrible skin disease. And so now, weeks go by. And Job is suffering greatly. Deep sorrow over the loss of his children. Sorrow over the loss of everything he owns. Physical torment with these terrible skin lesions. And weeks go by. And Job's suffering is great. And that initial attitude of worship starts to whittle away. It wasn't sustainable. The reality of what's happened is overcoming him. Anyway, Job has three friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And these are really good friends. They travel to be with him. They're going to come and they're going to counsel him and they're going to comfort him. And so these aren't fair-weather friends because Job really has got nothing he can offer them. He's got no material wealth. He's got no standing in community. He's not even going to be good company. So these are real friends. These are good friends. And the Bible says that when they saw Job, they wept. They tore their clothes. They put dust on themselves and they got down in the dirt and they sat with Job. These are good friends. Turns out later that they're terrible grief counsellors, <laughs> but they're very good friends. Now, for seven days and seven nights, Job and his friends sit in the dirt and they do not say a word. Imagine that. Seven days, seven nights, sitting in the dirt, not saying a thing, just grieving sorrowing, mourning. Then in chapter 3, after these seven days and seven nights, we read that Job breaks the silence. After weeks and weeks of sorrow and suffering, look at what he says in chapter 3. Verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth... And he cursed the day of his birth. In verse 11, he says, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came out from the womb? He says, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. And we can see here that Job has lost hope. Now, there was a famous old theologian who had a saying which I think is very helpful. He said, hope is to the soul what oxygen is to the body. And we can see here that Job is losing hope. And that void of hope is now being filled with cynicism and despair. And Job, Job even went on to say, I wish I was dead. That's how little hope he had. 
Now, once Job has broken the silence, his friends now feel the need that they're going to give him some counsel. And Job and his friends, for the next 30-odd chapters, they discuss this great question. Why do good people suffer? And is God just? Does God rule the world in a way that is just? And they have this great discussion over 30 chapters where they go back and forth. That's pretty heavy reading. It's in poetry. And what we see there in these poems is that Job flips around. He flip-flops between, on one hand, desperately wanting to believe that God is good. But then he flips and he says, God's cruel. God doesn't care. God doesn't run the world in a way that is fair and just. And he's back and forth. And his friends, they had pretty simplistic theology. And they said, no, God is just. So that means you're really bad. There's no way God would do this to you unless you've done something terrible. So what have you done? What violence? What cruelty? What perversions are you hiding? You must have done something wrong. And they go back and forth. They discuss. They debate. They argue. And what we find in, that in that discussion, in those poems, that there is a bit of a turning point for Job as he goes back and forth. Look what he says in chapter 17 when he's realised there's no hope in material things. There's no hope even in dying. Look what he says. He says, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Now, I've been wondering this week, how many people who lost everything in the fires have asked this same question? Where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? And one of his friends, Bildad, actually said something pretty profound. He said, those who forget God have no hope. It was one of the few smart things he said. In verse 19, we see this Job at this turning point, when he realised the only way to find hope is through God himself. And he says in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives... And that in him, sorry, there's more for me. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. So even though Job realises that hope is only going to be found in God, he still has this burning question. Why? Why did it happen? It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. And he can't shake it. And in the end, he gets so frustrated with his friends, he doesn't want to listen to them anymore, and he cries out to God. And he says, let the Almighty speak. He cries out and says, God, I want to hear from you. Show yourself. Give me an answer. I want to know from you what's happening. God turned up, this big cloud formed, a big 
tornado, like a whirlwind in a giant storm cloud, turned up and God spoke through the cloud. And God turned up to answer Job's accusations. Job's accused God. You don't run the, unit, the world in a way that's just. He's criticising the way God runs the world. Now, he might not have realised that what he was doing was, he was actually saying, I know better. You're not competent running the universe. I've got a better understanding of how you should do it. And God turns up to answer these accusations, to answer these questions. <clears throat> now, what's interesting is, God never gives an answer to why his children died. God never tells him the reason why he lost everything. Never told him why he became sick with skin lesions. But instead, God takes him on a tour, a virtual tour, through the universe. And he shows him the depths of the ocean. Shows him the far-flung galaxies. Shows him all over the earth, the lakes, the mountains. And he explains to him the systems, the complex intricacy of how everything works. <clears throat> He's letting Job know, this is my perspective. Your perspective is tiny. You don't have an eternal perspective. You, you, you're only in one little blip in time. You can only see this little bit of stuff around you. I see the whole universe. He said, did you know that when a, when a wild goat up on the hill, I know exactly how many months pregnant they are. Some deer in a far-off forest, miles away, in the middle of nowhere, when it gives birth to its little fawn, he says, I'm there, I'm present, I'm watching, <clears throat> I'm in control. Your perspective is tiny. And God actually flips things around. And God becomes the accuser. And listen to some of these questions he turns on Job. They're brutal. In chapter 38, he hits him hard. <clears throat> he says, where were you, he's talking to Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Where were you? I was measuring the dimensions of the planets and the stars, and I was setting up complex astrophysiological systems for suspension and for movement. And I'm making everything. Where were you? Oh, that's right. You didn't exist. You weren't anyone. You were nothing. When I was doing all this, you didn't exist. Another time he says, <clears throat> can you bring forth the constellations in the seasons? Are you able to control the planets and the stars and how they move and how the, how the earth rotates and the different stars come and go at different seasons? Is this something you're experienced in? Is this something you've done before? No, I didn't think so. <clears throat> Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Are you in control of the weather, Job? Do you manage the levels of the ocean? Do you make sure creeks and rivers run into lakes? Do you bring rain? Do you bring the sun? Do you make the sun rise and the sun set? Does the weather answer to you, Job? Is this something you've done? No, I didn't think so. <clears throat> Do you satisfy the hunger of lions? He says, Job, he says, every little creature on the earth from a microorganism up to the great beasts, he says, I'm making sure they've got food to eat. I'm making sure they can survive. I've got systems in place so they can all coexist in balance and harmony. Is this something you do, Job? Is this something you're experienced in? No, I didn't think so. And at one point, he actually says to Job, he pauses and he says, 
anything you want to say? And Job's like, no, I'm good. He says, I'm putting, he says, I'll cover my mouth with my hand. <clears throat> Listen to Job's response now when God's finished. God's shown him the intricacy of the universe, the complexity of the eternal nature of the universe and all the things that God is managing and all the things that God is controlling. And it's beyond his understanding, it's beyond his comprehension, all that God does in running the universe. And all of a sudden, his criticism, his idea that he knows better, seems so absurd, so stupid, so foolish. This is Job's response. <clears throat> then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's acknowledging there that God is sovereign. God is in control. He has plans. They don't make sense to him. Can't understand them. But God's sovereign. He's in control. He's all-powerful. Verse 3, he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me to know. He's acknowledging there God's wisdom. It reminds me a bit of what Paul says in Corinthians, that our wisdom is like foolishness to God. And Job here is acknowledging that God is wise. He's just, and he does what is right. He does what is good. <clears throat> Verse 5 says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. And Job realises his perspective on the world and on life and on circumstances is tiny. He knows nothing. He can't begin to understand because God's understanding, God's control, God's plan is so vast, so big. And we see here in Job's response the key to how to find hope. Because we don't find hope in answers, in trying to work out why things happen and why they don't happen. Our hope comes from knowing who God is. When we see God and we realise that he is sovereign, he is all-powerful, he has a plan, he makes promises that he will keep, the timing of those promises don't make sense to us. His ways are not our ways. Our hope comes when we realise that God is good, he is just, what he does is right and it's fair. And we realise that our hope comes not to work out the answers, but just to put our trust in him. And when we do that, we get yachal. We get this ability to wait patiently with confident expectation. The writer of the Hebrews, he described our hope as being like an anchor. It's sure and it's strong, it's steadfast. And no matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter what disaster, what disappointment, if we keep our eyes on God, we will have this great hope. <clears throat> now, we're going to take communion, so the worship team, welcome to come up. Now, I think I've managed to um, maintain my pledge that I wasn't going to give you any do's and don'ts, <clears throat> but we are going to uh, take communion now. 
And when we take communion, we're going to think of Jesus' death on the cross. And we're going to acknowledge that our access into this great hope comes through Jesus' death on the cross and through his resurrection. So we have this great hope this morning. Peter says it's a living hope. It's real. It's strong. It's sure. It's steadfast. And we can face the future despite the confusion, despite the questions of why, despite the suffering, despite the things that happen that make no sense. We can go forward with great hope, with confidence that God is in control. He's sovereign and he's good and he's just and his ways are right. Let's take communion.